Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gussis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Hope you're all doing well out there with our current crisis. Yes, and that's the one thing we want to start out with this episode, is just saying our thoughts and prayers are with everyone. Keep your family safe. That's the most important thing during this time, not gaming. We're hoping to just be a distraction. Although I'm sure a lot of you, like us, have been probably doing a little bit more gaming than you might normally, depending on how uh, much you have kids taking your time. I don't get to game during the afternoons and the mornings because I'm watching my kids basically every day. One, ironically, that's when I get to game, is when I'm with my kids. So <laughs> mine are a little bit older, as we've talked about in the past. But uh, yeah, this this has actually led to more gaming for me, although it, it's hot or cold, as with everything. In today's episode, we'll be reviewing Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons, the new game from Ravensburger by Prospero Hall. And it's currently a Amazon and Target exclusive, but I think after a while they open these things up to every game store to get yeah, usually even when they're like a Target exclusive, I'll at least see them at Barnes & Noble. I don't know if that means they've also got to deal with them or it's opened up like you said. Yeah, I don't know. But after we're done with that, we are going to cover programming games. Yeah, games where you set a series of actions to kind of resolve within a specific time or order. Should be fun. But before we get into all of that and just kind of talk about what we've been doing with ourselves during our break, let's thank some of our Patreon supporters. This week, we'd like to thank Eric Maxim, a co-op MVP, EKBH, another co-op MVP, and Brian Franklin, a co-op lover. Thanks to all of you, especially during these more trying economic times. And of course, anyone who's a patron, if you need to lower your pledge or you know suspend your pledge for a little while while you figure out what's going on with you and your family, we understand completely. But anyone who is able to support us either monetarily or just with a quick review or a friendly word on a YouTube video or Slack... We really, really appreciate all of you helping us keep this great gaming thing going during trying times. Yeah, and the YouTube channel's been on fire lately. You guys have had a video every day pretty much for a while now, sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, been a lot of work, and I'm really thankful for uh, Colin and Barron, and even Steve will pitch in sometimes, and Jason Perez did one recently. I don't know if I'll be getting as much help from Colin for a while, because big, awesome, happy congratulations. Colin's wife had... Uh, a baby, I guess, uh, yesterday as of when we're recording. So pretty awesome for him, but I imagine he will <laughs> not get to record, at least for a little while. Oh, and I just got a message from Colin for his uh, MVP pledge. Oh, I'm sure you did. Go ahead. He said, hey, guys, I'm not going to be recording very much lately. I just had a baby. That, that's awesome. See, that, that's very uh, apropos. It re- really matches the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, it, it has been a lot. I've, I've sometimes split up the playthrough and the review. I like to do them on the same day, but just to make the one video a day thing a little bit more manageable. But yeah, we're, we're trying to have as much good content as possible without overwhelming, like I think sometimes some of the bigger channels like Dice Tower or Man vs. Meeple do, where it's like five videos a day and you don't know what to watch. We still want to keep it around like one game covered or one video a day, but we're seeing how it goes. Uh, not sure we'll keep it up forever, but for now it's working. Well, and I know you got at least two in the hopper because you played with Jerry, myself, and Nicholas. So those videos still haven't come out. No, no, pretty much all of those are out now. I think the only one I'm waiting on is Slide Quest. I don't want to do too many kind of casual kid games all at once. But uh, yeah, let's uh, kind of jump in with that. What are some things you've been playing with your kids? What have you been up to with yourself? I can talk about my stuff and upcoming games I've covered. 
Yeah, we typically don't do this, but we figured, you know what? We'll give you a little bit longer episode. I've got a little bit more time to edit. We've got a little bit more time here at night to record. And we've had a little bit more time to game lately. So we've got a little bit more to talk about. And if I say a little bit more one more time, you're allowed to slap me or you guys have to start a drinking game, one or the other. <laughs> hey, well, I think uh, alcoholic uh, establishments are still considered mandatory by most states in quarantine. So there you go. You can definitely, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't want to encourage uh, more drinking during this time. <laughs> well, part of the problem too is if you run out because I say a little bit more drink too many times, then you won't have any for the rest of the quarantine. Yeah, good point. All right, what have I been playing? So even before this all started, I started playing more miniatures games with my kids, and this was brought on by Star Wars Legion. I had a lot of fun with that game. There's a intro scenario that comes with the base box, and it's really quick, probably 30 minutes or less to play, and my kids really got into it, both of my children. So it's a two-player game that is Star Wars, but unlike a lot of miniatures games, you're not typically bringing out tape measures because they have these pre-measured measuring devices. So it's more along the lines of something like X-Wing where you have these movement templates and you also have range templates. So it's a little bit more on the lighter scale, although as I've seen digging more into it, you certainly have rules questions that some miniatures games would have. So it goes a little beyond what a normal board game would have as far as rules questions. We've been playing that lately. Also, my son... So this is what I did. I don't know. It wasn't. It was definitely before the quarantine again. But one of my favorite games of all time, anybody who knows me knows, is Blood Bowl. So keep it on the miniatures game kick. So I thought, you know, what might get him into Blood Bowl is buying him the novels. Now, I do remember reading these when I was a kid and I loved them as a kid. I also remember thinking as I read them later in life that they were not great books. So I was a little bit worried (laughs) whether this would uh, fan the fire or totally keep him away from wanting to play Blood Bowl. But he really got on a kick and read all three books in very short order and then wanted to play Blood Bowl. So we've gotten a little Blood Bowl in as well. Star Wars miniature game, had a lot of fun with that. Blood Bowl had fun with that. In fact, Nick's now saying that it's his favorite game. Although, of course, he's at that age where that changes every week. (laughs) Yeah, so how about you? What have you been playing lately? Well, speaking of miniatures, and this is an unusual one for me because I don't usually do much miniature gaming. But uh, this is a game that is my primary shelf of shame candidate. Modifius, who does a lot of miniature games, they sent me Fallout Wasteland Warfare a long time ago. And I just, for one reason or another, have not covered it. So I wanted to fix that. I was just feeling really bad staring at it on my shelf. So I played it finally with the uh, solo slash co-op AI mode. And I'm really impressed so far. The AI works really well. And they sent me the Skyrim, the uh, you know Elder Scrolls version of your know, similar system game. Although I can't play it right now because Jerry, I gave him all the miniatures to put together and he still has them. But yeah, I, I love the Fallout setting. It's one of my favorite video game series of all time. Yeah, I, I liked my first play a lot. I'm going to play it a bit more before I actually cover it on the channel. But I think the AI works really well, does things that are intelligent. And I was kind of trolling through the online resources they have for the game. And they have really like cool scenarios to illustrate how robust the mission design can be with the AI. Like where the AI has this objective, but then they change that objective. Like they uh, have one that's basically a patrol mission where the AI kind of walks around the perimeter of a base. And you have to try to run in and not alert too many of them. 
And it works like super well just with this very basic, uh, simple AI system with like cards and dice. So I'm excited to dig into that more. But apart from miniatures, uh, it's mostly been when I'm gaming with uh, my family, it's mostly been kind of more casual things. Uh, Peter let me borrow the new three set of Unlock. And I've played uh, two of them. The first one, which is a circus theme. And the third one, which is kind of a time travel theme. Really enjoyed both of those. Played them both with my wife and my older son, who's seven. And those were a lot of fun. And my son, uh, he he likes to replay them once he knows the answers and just kind of feel proud of himself and beat it as quickly as possible. So we redid the entire circus one with him knowing everything and just seeing how well he could do it. Nice. And, and I say knowing everything, but he was not necessarily involved in a lot of the answers the first time. So he still got to kind of feel like he figured it out because he was trying to remember what the details were and I would give him hints and that kind of thing. I'll be honest, I've done that with Unlock Games as well. You mean like yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, some nights you're out of it and I'm just not getting any of the puzzles. And, you know, you guys are figuring stuff out on the other side of the table. So I've gone through some of those unlocks again a second time. Just like, oh, that's what they were talking about. Okay. Because, you know, I didn't want to break up the flow of the game while it was going on. But as we've said a lot of times with these unlock exit games, they're really mostly for two players. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's hard to get everyone involved. Uh, besides that, we played some other things we've talked about uh, fairly recently. Zombie Kids Evolution. We beat that entirely, like we unlocked the final thing. Now, the final thing has some new things to do. I'll be no more specific than that. So we haven't done those yet, but we did uh, get through kind of everything that's unlockable. Slide Quest has continued to be fun. Although, I, I was able to get my four-year-old to play it a bit, but now he just kind of tries to kill us every time and make us fall in pits because he thinks it's hilarious. So it's still entertaining, but <laughs> not, not necessarily what you would want for the actual game experience. I've been doing a lot of Arkham LCG, my number one game, on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, Peter and Jerry and I are trying to continue the Circle Undone campaign we started a few weeks back. We're uh, three scenarios in out of eight, not counting the sort of zero numbered starting scenarios. I guess we're four in out of nine. I'm also playing... Uh, I think I'd done a playthrough on the YouTube channel of a Forgotten Age play and done the first scenario, so I've done a few more of that. So getting my Arkham kick in, the Tabletop Simulator 1 works pretty well. It's still not nearly as fast or easy as just playing in person, <laughs> but it does the job. So we haven't talked about this. Let's kind of go through a brief rundown of what we think of the expansions we've played so far. So what are your thoughts on the newest one? What are your thoughts on some of the other ones you've played? Well, the newest one I have bought everything for that's out, uh, that's the Dream Eaters campaign, but I haven't played it yet, so I don't know about that. But yeah, talking about Forgotten Age, I've seen less of that than Circle Undone, but it's very punishing. I like the Indiana Jones kind of style theme, and I like the mechanics of exploring. Basic idea is in a lot of the scenarios, you only have like one location down at the start, and you have to dig through a deck to find them with traps and things waiting for you. I like all of that, but it is very punishing. Like, I have... I had three trauma at the end of the first mission. Usually I get no trauma. So <laughs> oh my gosh. It's yeah. kind of ridiculous what they throw at you. But yeah, I I'm liking it. The character I built is not quite a good match, but I'm trying to tough through anyway. And then uh, Circle Undone, I think it's pretty cool. I, I really dig the theme so far. I think the story is pretty neat and kind of the uh, twists and turns it's already had. And the last scenario we played was a bit of a slog. Like it took a long time, but I liked the design of it. I think in both Dunwich and Carcosa, the first and second big campaigns, the third scenario was my least favorite. So the fact that the Circle Undone scenario, the third one was not bad, was nice for me. It at least kind of broke the streak. <laughs> well, <laughs> What have you I, thought of it so far, Peter? Actually, I thought the third one was the best one by far so far. The first 
two, I was starting to be like, ah, do I want to keep playing through this? I guess my last experience was the Man in Yellow one, whatever episode. Yeah, the, the Carcosa one. And I love that. I, I really love the cards you got in your hand that, you know, the insanities or whatever that kind of started driving you crazy as you were playing and you had to play a little bit differently. And I was hoping they would continue with that mechanic. Unfortunately, so far, as from what I've seen, it's only been in that cycle. So I was a little disappointed at the start of this one. I didn't think the story was as strong as that one either, but it picked up for me on this last one. And I will say, I don't know if the mission itself was as much of a slog or the fact that we're trying to learn tabletop simulator at the same time. That's a good point. That's a good point. Because I know for me, I'm much slower on that. And we're trying to play with three players. Neither Jerry or I have much experience with it. So I think it was probably a slog partially because of that. Now, that, that's a really good point. But no, I enjoyed it a lot. Really, the only one I thought was kind of weak was the second one. Just because without too many spoilers, it kind of retreaded on something we had already seen earlier. Correct. The first one I thought was fine. It was interesting that we were separated for part of it. But no, I'm enjoying all the Arkham stuff we're doing. But yeah, besides that, I'm just uh, doing stuff for the channel, playing through games. I'm almost through my backlog, which is great for me because I really want to <laughs> cover. I've, I bought all these new things, but I feel sort of like obligated to cover the stuff that I was sent before the stuff that I bought for myself. So yeah, I have some cool things to cover. What I'm most excited about... Uh, Conan, the monolith game that's been out for a long time, and I think they had a recent Kickstarter for. Someone developed some pretty well-regarded uh, solo rules, uh, solo or co-op, for the Batman game that's from the same system. And another person I'm talking to on BGG developed a just a spreadsheet that kind of lets you use that for Conan. So I got their permission. I'm going to do a video showing those kind of fan-made solo slash co-op rules for Conan, which is a system I totally loved, but the only thing was uh, we didn't play it very much because it's competitive and it's not as much fun to be the overlord, kind of the enemy side. So the fact that that can be automated, if it works well, I'm hoping it will, will be very exciting for me. So that's one I'm looking forward to playing. Yeah, me too. I actually really enjoyed that system and I'm looking forward to playing more of it. So hopefully the new call is as good as people are saying. I mean, it looks super solid. It's actually very similar to what they're doing with the Fallout game. It's kind of like the idea of assigning objectives and then rolling or drawing a card to randomize whether they focus on killing you or going for the objectives. It's like kind of the same basic concept. So I'm expecting it to work well. It seems like it would, but we shall see. And it sounds like something we can use for spare parts too. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Or, or some other new games. I got That's one thing. I, I haven't had much time to design just because I'm watching the kids all the time. But I definitely have ideas for games that I'd like to explore more. Absolutely. So a couple other things that I've been playing. I got Wingspan back for Mike, and my wife is huge into birds. Like, we have four bird feeders outside. Now, sometimes they become squirrel feeders, as we all know. Anybody <laughs> who has a bird feeder knows. Yeah, the squirrels are there all the time. Even when you get these squirrel-proof things, those darn squirrels are super smart. But she loves having the birds outside. She loves watching them in the mornings and, and even has set up her home office so she can watch them all day. And so we played Wingspan, and that's one she's requested to get back. So we've played it two or three times since we've had it. So that's been something that's been really fun that we've been doing together because it's been a while since Linda and I gamed just the two of us without the kids. So And that and that is something that we've done without them, although certainly I've played it with both of them as well. So we're ready for a family four-player game. We just haven't gotten the... Uh, the gumption all at the same time to play a game. So looking forward to that when we do. Another game that I got the Kickstarter in for is Starcadia Quest, and I've been playing through that with Nicholas. So getting back to miniatures, this is the first game that I think I'm going to ever 
paint completely. At least the core set, we are five miniatures away from painting the core set, which is, there's quite a few miniatures in the core set. Yeah, and let me jump in. Peter sent Jerry and I a picture of it. Maybe you can share it on the Slack as well. And I think it looks awesome, dude. That, that's you and Nick. Like, how much was you and how much was him? So he's focused a lot on the heroes. I did one or two of the heroes, but he really has me painting the enemies up. So it's a lot of batch painting. So there's, you know, anybody who's played any game with enemies, there's like four of one type of enemy. So I'll paint four of one guy while he'll paint two heroes, which are very individual models. So I've been focused more on the enemies. He's focused more on the heroes, but I've done a couple heroes in there too. So we're doing this father son. Like he got into painting way before I did. Like he started painting lizard men for Warhammer. He started, he really wants to paint the Star Wars stuff. He's like, ask Jerry if I could paint his stuff. Ask Jerry if I could paint his stuff. Because the uh, the Star Wars Legion stuff is not ours, it's Jerry's. So uh, we, we've held off on that, but he's super excited to do it. And I think I might let him start doing it. And if Jerry's not happy about it, then we will just buy him a new core set because I want to get him excited about the game again. And I know he's super excited about Starcadia Quest because we've done all this painting for it. So... I'm hoping that, because Star Wars Legion, you said the game you're most excited about is Conan. For me, it's Star Wars Legion. I had a ton of fun playing that game, and I can't wait to get it back to the table. It's the right level of complexity for me because it uses those range rulers instead of a regular ruler or measuring tape. And the complexity level is just right when you use a unit. The unit is basically, the people in the unit are basically health for the unit. But they also matter for line of sight and things like that. So they do some cool things with that. They're not just hit points. But at the same time, they're as simple as being hit points. You're not having like individual weapons on each different guy. You could put a guy with a weapon in, but you're not going to have 10 guys with each of their own weapons. And they're all firing at different targets and all this stuff. It's pretty streamlined. And you're only activating one unit at a time with that. So I don't know. I guess I went back to uh, Star Wars Legion, but that's definitely the game that's been on my mind the most. <laughs> uh, I had some fun with Starcadia Quest, but it's not a great two-player game. I mean, same with Arcadia Quest. It wasn't really a two-player game, so I'm hoping as we get it up to three and four players, it'll shine a little bit more for me. Oh, one I did want to follow up on. I actually haven't told you this yet, Peter. Uh, Peter let me borrow Oh My Goods with the solo expansion. I think it's like Revolt in Longsdale or something like that a while back and I just never got around to playing it. I totally forgot where it was on my shelf for a while, but I did finally play the solo mode and you can also play it co-op and it was entirely okay. <laughs> I feel the same way about that. I, I The reason I bought that game, believe it or not, because it is the one of the first games that had a story deck and I've been trying to get this, you know, us to work on a game like this for a while with this story deck. And that is the whole reason I bought it. So it was like one of the first ones that I can think of. Of course, Arkham LCG does it great now. There's a lot of other games that do it great. Well, yeah, I would not say this game does it at all great. (laughs) It'll have like a story card in the mix each round. (laughs) Sure, but I think, I mean, it was the first one to come up with the idea. So it's not going to be the most innovative, of course. But I like how it changed the base game each mission. But to briefly report, because I don't think I'm going to do videos on it. Oh my goods, it's mostly out of print, but it's... Basically, you're like building buildings and working them to get resources, and it's like chaining resources together. Like this basic resource becomes this better thing, becomes this better thing. You're trying to make a lot of money and build more stuff, and it's fine. Uh, It felt very repetitive pretty quickly, and the small changes the scenarios offered in the like solo co-op mode did not change the overall feeling of doing the exact same thing every game. So that's why it was it was fine. I mean, for a little card game, it certainly does what it sets out to do. But I think uh, if I want that kind of experience, there are better, bigger games that I could try instead. 
Yeah, and I got to be honest, I felt the same way about it. Usually I, you know, reprimand Mike because he's not much of a Euro gamer. I, it's not his kind of game anyway. I had a feeling when he asked for it, I was actually very surprised that he wanted to borrow it because I had tried to get him to play it for a while just to play through those scenarios just so he could see what that was like. But as, as Mike said, there's been many better games since then that do it better. I mean, even something like Zombie Kids Evolution, even though it doesn't have a story along with it, just the unlocking of new things and the progressing. I, I think that's what I was looking for in the game. And it does that okay. But at the same time, I don't find anything super exciting about the core game. And the final two games I wanted to cover in this kind of banter section at the beginning here are Keyforge, which... I have played a ton with my kids. It's probably my favorite game now. Certainly, Nick has said it's his favorite game. Even Allison, I've gotten her into playing it a little bit, and she's requested it. So, Keyforge is still alive and strong here. Can't wait for the next set to come out, but just enjoying what we have as well. And I've gotten better at the game myself. I've taken some of those decks that I thought were weak and not going to be played very much, and I broke them down house by house. And I said, okay, this house in this set does this. This house in this set does this. And this house in this set does this. And I figured out a way to play that deck just looking at them one house at a time. Okay, this house is going to have to do this in this deck. And then, of course, you have to look at it as a whole picture as well. So Keyforge still hitting the table. Still loving that one. And the other one, anyone who's been following us on the Slack at all knows that I've been getting Marvel Champions to the table a lot. And again, that's something that I played a lot solo. I've also introduced it to Nick, and he played the first game solo. I always take people through the first game solo because it makes it quicker. And, you know, Rhino's pretty easy to beat by yourself. And then we played through that whole first three-mission campaign. And then I've been working through the same thing with Allison, too. So that Marvel Champions, still near the top of my list and getting better all the time. So that's some other games we've been playing. But we've spent enough time talking about other stuff. Let's get to our main focus today, Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons. Peter, you want to run through the theme a bit? Yeah, I'll do this real quick. So basically you are Diana, as she's called in this, because that is her name, along with some other Amazons protecting the their island against different threats. So Ares is the first threat you're going to face, but you also have Cersei and you have Cheetah as well. So there's three different enemies you go against, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But basically, you are defending the Amazon islands against these different threats as they come in to try to take you down. Yeah, the basic idea of the turn structure and how the game plays out. First, you resolve kind of the enemy phase. You'll generally draw a card to teleport the boss to a different space than where they are. And then you'll draw a series of cards based on player number to uh, do damage and escalate. The boss has three different types of obstacles they can put down, three different colors. And each boss kind of determines what those do. And then the players are each dealt two face-up action cards, and they can discuss freely what they want to do with these action cards. They'll show uh, two usually different, or sometimes three, or sometimes only one, symbol and numbers for those symbols. Like So it could be two sword, or three book, or two foot. And they can discuss what they want to do for the turn, but then they'll get three more cards, so they'll have five cards to choose from total, but then they can't talk anymore. And they'll secretly program an action one, an action two, and an action three. And everyone reveals their action one, and they choose what order they want to resolve them in. So they could, like, move, they could uh, remove the obstacle things, or if they're on a space with the boss, they can try to hit the boss. And if people are on the same space together at the same time, they can kind of combo their actions together. So that's the basic gist. You do the enemy turn, and then you program your actions with a little bit of cooperation and a little bit of limited communication. 
Generally, at the end of each turn, the obstacles that are left will do negative things. Many of them will make the life of the island go down. And you're trying to defeat the boss, get rid of all their life, before the island loses all of its structure, or whatever you want to call it. Now, there are a few other things like relics and things that'll come out, but that's pretty much it. That's how you play the game. Cool. All right. So for those of you joining us for the first time, thank you. And what we do here is we talk about the top five things we think about the game, starting with number five, which we think is the least important, and working our way up to number one, which we feel is the most important. So, Mike, I typically go first, but why don't you start with your number five? All right. My number five is a mix, and that's sort of the differentiated special powers that the players have access to. So each of the five Amazons has a unique power, and then additionally there are eight relics, and you'll use uh, four of them in a given game, and those also have the kind of unique powers. So on the positive side, the powers are pretty simple, they can be somewhat interesting, and I just appreciate that they have unique powers in here at all, especially with like the relics, because the relics will usually uh, pop up in a kind of corner of the island, and you have to run over often out of your way to pick them up, so it kind of becomes a risk-reward uh, question. But on the negative side, they are pretty uninspired. <laughs> I think that's the best you can say about them. Like, the Amazon powers themselves are identical to some of the relic powers, and they're things like draw an extra card or get two extra cards. And uh, there are very few that are kind of cool. Like, the lasso is pretty cool. You can drag obstacles along with you. Uh, the bracers of deflection are really neat and can really control a lot of things. Diana's power to move for free is pretty nice. But a lot of the powers are uninspired. I still appreciate that they're there, but they certainly don't make the game exciting. It doesn't really feel that different to play one Amazon to another. It's not the kind of game where you're going to like explore what Wonder Woman is like versus somebody else. They're all pretty simple. Yes, and to tell you how little I thought about this, it didn't even make my list, and I thought about it, and it still <laughs> didn't make my list, because I agree with you. They are very uninspired, and to show you how little I cared about their individual powers, my number five was the theme, which is something I never discuss, but uh, certainly the superhero theme is amazing, but even on top of that, just this these powerful women, this group of Amazons bonding together fighting back against, you know, whatever is attacking their homeland. You know, you see this all the time with male-centric characters, but there's something even more powerful about it when you have female lead characters. This hobby we're in is dominated by male-centric heroes, and it's just nice to see a change of pace, and I think they do a really good job of it here. And so that's my number five. I really love the strong female lead characters. I just love how it all came together, and certainly it has attracted my wife and my daughter to play the game more so than they would if it had a different theme. So I do think the theme stands out on this one. So that's why it's my number five, the theme. Yeah, I won't say the theme especially is anything strong, but I do appreciate the female empowerment kind of on display. And it makes sense, you know, if you're on Themyscira, there shouldn't be any men there. I guess the only man in the game is Ares. Yes, a uh, quick note on that, though, when I played it with uh, Harrison and my four-year-old with uh, my roommate kind of helping out the four-year-old today, uh, both the kids wanted to be Diana, and once one of them couldn't be, they got really bummed out because they didn't care about any of the other women. So Harrison, uh, I let him go and get a, what's that, uh, what's that, like, cruddy, really cheap uh, robot, like, football game? Battle Ball. Yeah, Battle Ball. Uh, I let him get, like, one of the giant guys from Battle Ball, so... It was uh, four am or two Amazons and a giant robot monstrosity <laughs> fighting against uh, Cheetah when we played today. Nice. <laughs> so he was happy. 
So I guess we had a man there anyway. Or I don't know if he's really a man. He's probably more metal than man at that point. More than meets the eye. <laughs> that's different. So my number four is a full-on pro, and that's the Amazon Warrior recruitment mechanic, which I really enjoy in this. So you've got your icons, as I said, during the how-to-play thing. You've got, like, swords, generally for fighting. You've got books, generally for, like, saving or healing people. Again, it depends on the adversary you're facing. You've got uh, movement, and then you've got this star icon. And it's kind of like a wild. And, hey, wilds are cool. We like wild symbols. But this game's really clever in that it's not just a basic wild like some other game might have where you can just use it for free. How it works is at certain spaces on the board, spaces with a star icon, you can recruit Amazon Warriors. And they then become a held wild. Anytime you do a future action or anybody does a future action at your location, you can bring them with you when you move. You can boost your action by discarding some of them. So you need to do a three attack, but you only have one attack. Uh, You know, discard two Amazon Warriors on your space and you'll be boosted to a three. So it's basically a wild mechanic, but it makes the board presence more interesting because you have to actually like move around with them and you can only recruit them at certain spaces. It's a held wild, so it can mitigate luck in later rounds. And a final cool thing is a lot of the adversaries deal with them. So Ares can actually turn them against you. Uh, Cheetah can injure them. So it's kind of like a fun thing in that they are something that you might want to hang on to. And they can like you can recruit a ton of them to do a crazy turn, like hitting the boss really hard. But you can also be punished for doing that if you have bad luck in how the boss moves and interacts with you. So I really, really like this mechanic. In fact, maybe four is too low for it. But I think it's a really, really neat thing. And I really appreciated it. You know, we usually don't score these lists and say my list is better than your list or my number four is better than your number four. But your number four is way better than my number four. I totally agree with you. <laughs> That's something I... Wait, is this not on your list? It's not like on my, my list at all. You know, it's one of those things that I don't know why I didn't think about it. You know, when you're thinking about the main things about the game, it isn't something I think about. But when I think about the cool things about the game now that you're talking about it, that really does stand out in my mind. That's that's a really good one, and it's really one of the uh, key fun things about the game is this mitigation of Amazons. And it's certainly, you're going to do it more against certain enemies than other ones. Like Ares, you don't use it barely at all because they very quickly turns them against you. But against the other two, you definitely need to have big turns against them, and the Amazons certainly help you do that. But you're still at a little bit of a pressure luck situation because they can still come and injure them as well. Yeah, and I'll say, I guess number four is the right place for this because it's not the most important thing about the game, like you were saying, but it's certainly my favorite mechanic in the game. I think if this game does something clever, this is the most clever thing it does. Yeah, I agree with you, and it should have made my list. But my number four is the relics. And as you said, they aren't the most inspired thing in the world, but they're certainly more inspired than the character powers. As you were saying, the uh, the lasso is pretty cool. You can bring one type of enemy with you. Some of the other ones are pretty cool. They let they empower some of the cards in the game, and we'll get to the cards in a little bit you know, on my list. But you know, they make some of the cards better. So if some of them make the swift cards better, some of them make the courageous cards better, or whatever. I, I can't think of the names of them right now, but I like how they each have their own thing that they empower. Like, you're really good at doing this now. And so, unfortunately, there's not a lot of ways you can work around that and kind of get those cards into your hand. And, you know, sometimes it can be a frustration where I'm the person that works with all the speed cards, but Mike's the one that drew all the speed cards. So, guess what? My special power does nothing. But at the same time, I still think 
that they are neat. There's an interesting decision when you draw them, whether you want to lay them down on the table. And I got this wrong the first couple of times I played it. I actually thought you laid it down in the location you were at, but each of the relics come from a different location on the island and it tells you where to place it. So sometimes actually we chose not to put the relics down on the board, even though they'd help us in the long run, but they're just not in our short-term plans. Because if you do decide to put a relic on the board, it gives you one less card in your hand for that turn. So instead of having five cards, you're only going to have four cards to work with. Or sometimes if you draw two relics, you only have three cards to work with, so you're kind of stuck with what you draw. So I thought the relic mechanic was kind of neat. I thought their powers were way better than the Amazon powers, or at least more interesting. So that was my number four, is the relics. But Mike's number four is better, so listen to him. (laughs) My number three, this will probably be on your list, I'm sure, this time. I'm not sure where it will be, though. But my number three is the varied bosses. There are, again, three in the base box. I mean, base box, I say, but I don't know if this will ever be expanded. You got uh, Ares, Xerxes, and Cheetah. And this is a pro for me. I think they did a really nice job, much better than they did differentiating the Amazons. So each of the bosses has a different way they treat the three obstacle-colored cubes. And I like not just that the, uh, the effects are varied... But also that I feel like they're really thematic. So as an example, I played Cheetah today, so she's freshest on my mind. She'll have these, uh, like, lycanthropes, like, you know, werewolves or whatever, on the island that she places. And she'll place them in her space when you hit her. She'll place one at the start of each turn. So she really spreads these guys all around. And if you leave them alone, they don't hurt the island themselves, but they wound Amazons. And as the Amazons sit there wounded and you don't heal them, that's how the island falls. So it's kind of like thematic that you have to like heal these Amazons who have been injured, but you also have to like defeat these lycanthropes so that they don't take over things. Now you've also got these hunting parties that make her kind of cycle through her deck more quickly. <laughs> Theme's not as strong there, but they're all interesting and they all have different ways you defeat them. They all use icons differently. And not only that, but each of the enemies has a unique deck that they go through. So again, the heroes aren't very differentiated, but the enemies have an entirely different deck. They'll move different ways. They'll affect things differently. Like uh, Peter said, Ares will kind of steal all of your Amazons. You have to be really careful about that. So yeah, it's, it's just really cool. I appreciate it. Uh, clearly, a lot of thought went into each one. They feel very different. Cersei is really crazy. Like, people get turned into pigs, just like in uh, the Odyssey, and you got to, like, uh, move them back. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate the the difference that went in here. It reminds me a lot of uh, Horrified, but I'd say uh, they actually did it better here than in Horrified. I think Horrified's kind of different villains were fine. I think there is stronger differentiation here. Yeah, just so you know, in the hunting parties, are they're looking for relics on the island. And so that's why she cycles through her deck faster. Because every time she cycles through her deck, she gets one of these relics put into her deck. And when she goes through the deck three times, the players just lose automatically, which is different than any of the other enemies. So she's really trying to cycle through that deck. So the more hunting parties she has out, the faster she finds those relics. And that's the theme there. Yeah, good point. I I did make that connection, but you're right. Well, if you read the books, and this is one of the other neat parts, there is neat flavor text in the book as well, in the rule book. When you're reading about them, you're not just reading, you know, what their rules are. And there's less than a page for each one. But you can also read the fluff and why they're doing what they're doing. All right. So my number three, though, is simultaneously programming. And I'm sure this is higher on your list. This is going to be the subject of our design discussion today. But basically... It's interesting. I think they took a lot from the mind. I think the mind has been an influence on a lot of games where they said, okay, how do we make programming interesting? Well, you have to make it so that people can't talk during this programming if you're going to do it simultaneously. So you can communicate as much as you want when you're looking at your two face up cards. As soon as you draw your three face down cards, 
communication stops. You have to program on your own, and then you can talk again once the cards are laid down. Now, this does lead to some interesting moments, but for me, it's actually can lead to more frustrating moments because it's like, okay, I'm going to move over here. I'm going to deal with these guys. Well, I didn't draw any cards that let me deal with those guys. So now I can't tell you that I can't deal with it. But at the same time, I have to deal with the cards that are faced with me and and come up with a plan B, basically, knowing full well that we're just going to have to deal with the consequences of me not dealing with this threat. So, I mean, I guess there is a way to have multiple people working on the same threat. And a lot of times you can see what's going on because those two face-up cards, if you use both of them, do give you quite a bit of information. But sometimes I just wouldn't even have any movement cards. So I have all the other stuff I needed to do certain things, but I didn't draw that. So I think the simultaneous program's interesting. I think the fact that you can't talk during it is interesting, but it might have led to more frustration for me than actually interest. And the fact that you can talk before and afterward and as soon as you flip it over, I guess you can pivot, but a lot of times you can't. A lot of times you're kind of stuck in what you did. And so I don't know that it's as interesting as something like the mind. In fact, I know it's not as interesting as something like the mind, that that lack of communication during the programming phase. I mean, I'm not going to agree with you at all. This is like the mind. (laughs) I, I, I strongly disagree with that. But that's okay. <laughs> it doesn't really well, matter. Because... No, just the lack of communication. I, I'm, I, I agree with you totally that it's not like the mind, but why else would they have no communication during this programming phase? Oh, well, sure. I mean, I, I would say like something like Quirky Circuits is a much better comparison in terms of like a programming game with limited communication than the mind. <laughs> well, sure. But before the mind did it, nobody else was doing it. Quirky Circuits wasn't around before that. But I don't think the mind did it. I don't really. I don't think what you're talking about is a thing. All right. Well, this is a debate for another day, I guess. So we'll have to do quirky <laughs> circuits now, just so we can debate this. Yeah, no, I want to do that. I want anyway. Wait, we didn't already do that an episode on that. Nope. <laughs> well, we'll have to get to that. That's another one I want to cover on the channel at some point. All right. So my number two is uh, somewhat related to yours, although yours will come up later. Uh, that is the action cards themselves, and this is a mix. They are a little bit interesting. Some of them have special powers. And I do want to say for the level of game this is, like, I think this is supposed to be a pretty casual game. I think it would have been intimidating and slowed down play too much if they all had powers. So the powers part I like. I I think it's cool that, like, some of them are like, hey, this is doubled if you play it first, or this is doubled if you play it last. Or uh, if you can set it up so that uh, two other people play the same card, you double both of them. So there's, like, some fun stuff there. And they do tend to have two icons. So like Peter said, you can kind of pivot if like your programming goes awry. But in the end, actually resolving the actions is super rote and fairly dull, I find. Like it's like, yep, I moved two here and I uh, removed some stuff. So it's really all about the programming, which I'll get into for my number one, clearly. The action cards themselves are fine. I like that they have some special powers. Uh, they're pretty easy and simple to understand. But yeah, like actually doing the actions is generally pretty uninteresting the only like really interesting and fun action you do is fight the boss because usually that's like all of you ganging up and like doing some big combo besides that they're pretty dull they're just kind of like i mean you know like a lot of games it's like you move and and remove a disease cube you you move and pick up an item you you move and you punch an amazon (laughs) or whatever so well and it's even less than that right because it's just you can do one thing on the card so you either use it to move you use it to do a special action which is usually removing some cubes or attacking the boss or you use it to recruit warriors. That's that, Those are literally it. Well, I guess I'm thinking of, like, the three cards as my turn. Like, if they were action points in another game. So, yes, each 
individual action is pretty dull, and even all three of them put together aren't that exciting. Well, and the way you do it when you resolve the actions is everybody resolves action one first, so mine might be move two spaces, yours might be fight or whatever, but all the actions are super fast. All right, guess what? My number two is also the multi-use cards, and I can't disagree with anything you've said. For me, they are very thematic. You know, if something is quickness, it usually involves movement, and it usually involves either fighting or, or something along that. It's not like leadership, typically, when it's a quickness card. And the quickness will probably have three or four movement, where some of the other cards typically only have one or two. So they are somewhat thematic, only if you're looking for it, right? Like, well, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if that's what I would call theme. <laughs> well, but, you know, the, the ones that are like strategic planning, if you put them first, it doubles it. You know, the ones that are like being patient are if you use them last, it doubles the symbols on the cards. So, I mean, there is some thought put into the theme there. Don't get me wrong. This is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They named them well. That's fine. <laughs> right, right. It's It's not super thematic or super whatever, but I don't know. It does its job well. It does what it's trying to do well. It's You're doing actions as you would in Pandemic or anything else, but you are limited by something, and this is the limiting factor of the game. And when you're attacking the boss, you can attack on any symbol. So I do like that you have to coordinate there. you know, And you even have to say, hey, let's coordinate that on the third turn we're going to be here. Or if you see a face-up tactical card and you're playing with other people, you go, okay, well, why don't you two make sure you're playing the same thing? Oh, I see both of you have this face up. Why don't you both play that in your third action, and I'll play my tactical. So, you know, there is some planning involved, and it's like, okay, well, what are we going to attack the boss on? All right, we're going to attack him on this. And, oh, no, that's my only card with movement on it, so I'm not going to be able to attack him on this. So maybe you're not pulling your part of the weight. So I don't know. I I think there is some cool stuff involved in the card play, but it's certainly not a brain burner by any stretch of the imagination. All right, so my number one, as already indicated, is the kind of uh, programmed and the cooperation in the programming. I think this is kind of the key mechanic of the game. This is certainly where all the thought goes in. All the rest is just pretty much resolving what you were going to do anyway. And this is like a mix leaning pro. On the positive side, the stuff I like, I like that you can talk, but it's not like full perfect planning. You can't have alpha player in here. You're going to have to like kind of figure things out. Probably my favorite part of it is the timing element. And that you can be like, hey, okay, let's let's hit them on action three with books. And like, I find that really cool. Just kind of like it coming together. It's like a very, you know, programming games sort of have that cool feeling of things working out. And this does it on a very limited level, but it's still pretty fun. But that being said, like Peter said, it can be really frustrating. Things can go wrong. You can have no movement. And I guess it's not necessarily the fault of the programming. That's sort of back to the action cards. And also the programming can be really simplistic. Like, it might be entirely obvious what you should do with the cards you have, and there's not really much thought involved. But again, that's fine. It's a lighter game. It means uh, younger people like my son can play it successfully. So, you know, it's it's an okay game. Uh, (laughs) I don't get into my my final thoughts yet. But yes, the, the programming is fine here. Certainly the games we'll be discussing in the design discussion, I think pretty much all of them do it better. This is going to be like the bottom one of the games we're going to talk about for me in terms of programming. But it's still mostly a pro for me because I like programming in general. So my number one is the enemies and how different they are. Just like Mike said earlier, I totally agree with you. The three different enemies play completely differently. I love the fact that they use the cubes for different things. I love that you have to beat them in different ways, but none of it is overcomplicated. As we've said, you know, the cards are going to dictate, you know, do I need swords to beat them this time or do I need movement or do I need, 
leadership or whatever. So it's not overly complicated, but they feel very different. Playing against one enemy feels very different than playing against the other enemy. And they've done three very distinct enemies in the game, and I like how they did that. Now, I will say I don't think they scaled Cheetah correctly. When you played Cheetah, did you play a four-player or...? Three player, and I didn't change anything, and she seemed fine. But yeah, I, I see your point uh, that with two player, I think she would progress through the deck way too slowly. Yeah, so I mean, I kind of came up with a home rule variant for Cheetah already. So, Cheetah, the way she beats you typically is by going through her deck, or that's at least supposed to be one of the pressures. The problem is with two players, you're only going through two cards a turn, with four players, you're going through four a turn. So, I don't know why they didn't scale that at all. So, a very simple homebrew for her, I did was just remove either a quarter of the deck if you're playing with three players remove half the deck if you're playing with two players and that way that time pressure is still on you but even with that like she feels very different than playing against the other enemies even playing her two player so i don't know that they always got the scaling exactly right but again in a family weight game like this i think they did a great job with what they were doing so that's my number one is the three different enemies feel very differently and you're going to have to play very differently playing against them, which makes me happy in, in a game as light as this is. All right, Mike, so what are your final thoughts? Yeah, so I previewed it a little bit. Uh, this game is entirely fine. When Peter first mentioned it and I was hearing some buzz about it, I was kind of more excited about it. But for me, there's two main comparisons here. Let me go through each of them briefly. I compare it to Horrified. Both are from Ravensburger. Both are by Prospero Hall. For me, Horrified is a much better game. I think uh, your turns are more, like, kind of dynamic there. I like the event deck and, like, the little, like, people you have to save popping up. I like uh, switching around the villains and stuff. And I think it just feels like you're having more fun on your turn, for me, with Horrified. And at the same time, it's also easier to play. Like, I, <laughs> as easy as this game is to play, I still feel like Horrified is even more accessible. So that's one. But here's the thing that really knocked uh, Wonder Woman down for me. And Peter might disagree with this some, but I still, I talked to this about him on the phone, and I still feel this way. I covered, uh, what is it, Arkham Horror Final Hour, and I think we did a podcast on it as well. And that game came out uh, late last year, and it is weird to me how similar the two games are. You have, like, very limited communication in sort of programming actions that'll happen in a certain order. You have uh, three varied enemies you can play against with different effects. You have kind of like the control of obstacles or minions. The biggest difference, I guess, besides theme, of course, is that uh, Final Hour has kind of this somewhat random, but also, I think, pretty exciting endgame where you're trying to, like, seal the uh, gate at the end, whereas Wonder Woman just has the basic, you know, get their hit points down before they get your hit points down thing. But yeah, for me, I think Final Hour, first of all, it can be played solo. Uh, Wonder Woman can't, so that's a nice thing, and I like the solo mode in that. But I think Final Hour, I enjoyed it a lot more. They have individual decks for every investigator, so I really like that kind of differentiation. And I, I don't know, I find the gameplay in that more exciting. I found Wonder Woman a little bit dull. Now, my wife is more excited about Wonder Woman, so, you know, that that's a pro. But yeah, I would suggest uh, Horrified or Final Hour over this one. It is entirely fine, but I think there are better games for all the things that it does. You know, I can't disagree with most of what you said, but at the same time, I put this, well, probably in the middle. I would definitely play Arkham Final Hour before this, but I like this better than Horrified myself. Even though the one thing I'm worried about, and I started to see it, is the sameness of the game. Yeah. I worry a little bit about replayability. I think even though the monsters in Horrified play very, we talked about this, you know, you're really just playing colors to do things and i mean it's very similar there as well 
I think it felt more samey here than it did there. So I do worry about that. Even though the enemies, I was super excited to play all the enemies. But now that I have, when I played them a second time, I wasn't as excited to play them the second and third time. Yeah, exactly. So they, they just didn't feel different enough to me. But for me, that first time through was worth it. And, you know, probably two or three times I would enjoy each enemy and playing it with different groups. And, you know, with as many games are as out now, I'm probably not going to play it every night. So we played it back to back in quick succession. And I noticed that I got bored doing that. But I think if it was a longer time between games, if I pulled it out every two or three months, I think I would enjoy the experience of it every time I pulled it out. This one is above horrified for me. But it's going to be a matter of personal preference. I think they both do a really good job of being family-friendly, accessible, and presenting a theme really well and and giving you something to play with. Absolutely. I I still don't see the comparison with Final Hour. I mean, when you were saying it, I'm like, yes, it has that. It has that. It has that. It feels nothing like Final Hour to me when I'm playing the game. I, I, I disagree. I think if we played Final Hour again, you would see these similarities pretty quickly. Yeah, I don't know. And I think this one is much more family-friendly. And I don't know that there is enough in Final Hour for me to bring that out on a game night. And I, you know, certainly Wonder Woman's not going to be a game night staple. It's going to be more of a family staple. So at least I see a place for that. Whereas Final Hour, I, I don't even know a situation where I would pull it out. You know what I mean? There, there are typically better games in its weight for me. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing. I'm not saying any of those three <laughs> are like top tier recommendations, <laughs> but just uh, kind of comparing games that I thought were similar in different ways. Sure, sure. And again, I do think the theme for Wonder Woman is also going to draw a lot more people in. Yes. And I'd even said in the final hour review, I think the theme was a mismatch there. Like they tried to push Arkham Horror on it, but there's not really much Arkham about it. And I kind of wish it was a different theme. Sure. All right. So uh, we're going a little bit long. We'll try to keep the design discussion a bit briefer than normal. We're going to talk about programming in cooperative games, uh, how it's been done well, our suggestions, and our thoughts. Uh, Peter, you want to start us off? Sure. So programming, for me, is not as high as it is on your list. And I think about some of the games. I think about Mechs vs. Minions. I think about Quirky Circuits. I think about Space Alert. These games where you're putting down cards a lot of times that's how you are programming things you're putting down cards to determine your actions that come up in the future and then something crazy happens so another game that i thought of that isn't exactly programming but i do like better than these and i i kind of want to figure it out and see if it goes in programming for you is galaxy trucker galaxy trucker you're not actually programming your actions but i feel like you've built your ship and that's like dealing with the cards that are coming you know what i mean i I get that same sense of lack of control with that even though it's not the same action and that one i do like so i don't know why i don't like the lack of control that i feel in programming games but i do like it in something like galaxy trucker where i'm building something but then i don't have control of it later it bothers me in programming games but it doesn't bother me in something like galaxy trucker and I, i can't figure out in my mind where the difference is Yeah, and I'll freely admit that kind of lack of control is one of my favorite things in games. Not the whole time, but like when they have moments of it. So Galaxy Trucker is a top game for me. Space Alert, as you mentioned. And I would even say, like, I like that about Final Hour, whereas some people might hate it in that the ending is kind of like this, hey, control's kind of taken out of your hands. It's a little bit of a random die roll, whether you win or lose, deal with it. I like that for kind of tension building. But yeah, it can also be an extreme source of frustration for sure. 
And that's something I also had for kind of programming games in general, that frustration is a high thing. And I think uh, one of the best ways to deal with this is, well, there's a few different things you can do. And I guess we're kind of jumping right into the nitty gritty pretty quickly. But I think, uh, first of all, you do want to consider in a programming game whether it's going to be long-term programming or short-term. What I mean by that is uh, Space Alert is kind of my perfect example of a long-term programming game. Even though they have kind of three phases for the programming, you still are not revealing everything you've done and checking whether it was right until the entire end of the game. (laughs) And it's like, oh my god, we got totally destroyed. So that can lead to, for me, more fun and craziness, but for other people, more frustration and more mistakes. Uh, But Space Alert also has something that is a positive and I think is good to consider for any programming game somebody might want to design. And that's uh, kind of mitigation factors. In Space Alert, you can trip to kind of change a thing you did. So like you meant to go left, but you went right by accident. You can basically skip an action and trip to change it so you go the right way. Now in Space Alert, things are so punishing when you're off time that that probably will still get you killed. But I think the idea is a good one. Like in Wonder Woman, I think it would have been great if you could treat any card as a one of any symbol, for example, to kind of fix those times where you didn't draw any movement cards. Yeah, I agree. I think it's okay to give players kind of that control and that mitigation and that like choice of like a lesser effect to fix something. But also uh, to go back to the long-term, short-term thing, I think generally speaking, and you'll see this, all the other games we've talked about so far are short-term co-op planning. It's like you plan just a few cards, you plan just one turn, you get to see what happens before you plan the next turn. And I think it's probably the way to go in general. Like, it, it makes the game more accessible. It makes it easier to make up for mistakes, uh, less frustration. So I would say, like, you know, probably want to keep it to not programming more than maybe three, maybe four cards max at a time. And then see what happens. By player, I mean, per player. And then you can see what happens and let them kind of pick up the pieces from there. So, yeah, I think you're right. It can be uh, frustrating. Now, Galaxy Trucker, I-, I see what you mean. It's It's certainly not programming, but it has the same kind of idea of, like you said... You know, throw some stuff together, prepare, but I have limited information. I'm not entirely sure of what's going on. With programming games, cooperatively, it comes from the limited communication, usually, of not knowing what somebody else programmed or what cards you'll draw. But, yeah, I I think it has a similar feel, but definitely not the same kind of game. Well, I think maybe it comes down to control a little bit. You feel like you should have more control in these programming games. Like, I feel like I put that card down. Why isn't it doing what I want it to do? And I get frustrated at myself, maybe. Whereas Galaxy Trucker, it's like, well, I rolled a seven five times in a row. Well, of course my ship blew in half. It feels like you didn't have control over that. Whereas here, it feels like, you know, it's it, some games make you feel clever. Games like The Mind, for me, do that. Make you feel like you did something really good, even when it's out of your control. And I think sometimes programming games do the opposite for me. So just staying on the con side for now, I think sometimes... I feel like I should be in control here, but I'm not. And, you know, that sometimes comes down to, and I think a lot of times, the only programming games I know of always use cards for this. And, of course, it's a random draw of cards. You're not getting certain fixed cards. You're drawing cards randomly to set up this program. So there's going to be luck involved, but it's going to be luck of card draw more than luck of the dice or anything else. So maybe that's it. Maybe I feel like I have a lot of control, but I still don't because it's down to card draw to some degree. And yeah, I I hear you on that. But for me, at least, that kind of goes right into one of my major pros of this. And that's, uh, in a way, this is a lot like our conversation on limited communication. A lot of limited communication games will take what is a very simple task, very simple actions, 
and will make them or try to make them more interesting by limiting your communication. Like Magic Maze is a pretty simple set of actions to get your characters to the right places and steal the stuff they need, but the fact that you can't talk suddenly makes it more interesting. The Mind, an incredibly simple set of actions. I'm playing numbers in order. Anybody can do that. But because of the limited communication, it becomes more interesting. So I think uh, programming in a similar way has the potential to make very simple actions and very simple turns a very puzzly, interesting thing. Like think of Wonder Woman for a second. If you just got five cards and I took my turn and I played my three cards and then Peter took his turn and he played his three cards, you know, it would work. But I think it would be a much less interesting game. You know, it's already not that interesting of a game, but that would make it even worse. So, like, you can take very simple turns, very simple actions, and in the timing element and the cooperation element and the limited communication and the lack of kind of clarity on what's going to happen, I think it makes the games more fun, and I think it cre increases the puzzliness of a very simple turn. So, for me, that's a great thing, but I, I can see how, especially when it's, like, card-based and you don't get the cards you need... And within the limited communication, you can't kind of work through that. That is, again, a source of frustration. So these are, I think, both a chance for better puzzliness, more interesting turns, more excitement, more tension, but also frustration. Yeah, and I think sticking on the pros here, some of the pros that I like is how you can mess with the programming. And this is, for me, some of my favorite parts of these programming games. So Space Alert does it. If you don't jiggle the mouse, then everybody's cards get moved down one spot, right? Or if... Nobody put batteries in, the action you took to shoot something gets wasted. Like, I like how it messes with this programming. I like the things they do within the programming. And so I think there's a lot of design space there. Mechs vs. Minions does something similar. When you get shot or when you get hit, it messes with your programming line. So there you have a line of five cards, and they don't change very much. But when you get hit, it switches the spot of two cards. Or it puts something permanent in that spot until you repair it. So... I like how, as a designer, I like some of the cool things they've already come up with, and I feel like there's a lot more things we could come up with in the future to like mess with this program, and I think that's one of the more fun things and one of the more you know, enjoyable things about programming for me is when they mess with this, because then I don't feel like I made mistakes, and then I get less frustrated with it. For some reason, it's, it's a weird dichotomy in my mind, but like... That doesn't bother me as much, and I think it's cool how, as a designer, you can mess with the program itself to make it not work out exactly as the people had hoped it would. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. That was a, a big pro for me as well. I'll just throw in that Quirky Circuits does it to an extent, too. You have the, if you remember, the differently colored cards, and you're forced to play them first, which kind of influences the whole strategy of the turn. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, like, the, the design space for programming, as you said... Really fun stuff. I, I think it can keep on being taken further. Yeah, no, absolutely. So for me, that was probably the biggest pro that there was for this. And I think if you're going to do a programming game, don't do something vanilla. Like there's so many little things you can do to mess with that programming. And they all do it a little bit differently. But find a fun quirk that you can do with that and and change it up. Because I do think that is one of the best parts about it. You're definitely going to have to start with a simple system, as Mike said. Simple actions, move, turn, activate A, activate B, whatever you want to do. That's, you know, very space alert. But when you put it all together, it becomes much more interesting. And the programming makes those simple things interesting. And so for me, you're right. The game has to be very simplistic in and of itself in the actions you're doing. 
for the programming to work. I, I, in fact, I can't think of any game that is super complicated where they throw programming in. I mean, Space Alert is always the most complicated one for me, but that's still not in the mechanics themselves. You move, you go up or down, or you push a button, <laughs> you know? Right. But the enemies are so crazy and varied in their effects. That's why I love it, but why it's also really hard to get played. Um, they're so, like, ridiculous in, like, the stupid stuff they do and the invaders that jump on your ship that it becomes very complicated. Well, yeah, and I think that one doesn't mess with the formula itself, right? Your formula is not messed with, except for the jiggling of the mouse part of it, or if somebody else didn't do their job and get you batteries by turn three of action two or whatever else. Like, yes, it gets messed with there, but the enemies are really what's putting the pressure on you there and making it so the programming's not obvious. Yeah, and that'll go into a pro endicon for me, and we've sort of talked about this a bit already. But I think programming demands really close cooperation. So in Wonder Woman and uh, things like Space Alert, when you're each programming your own actions, there will be a time element. Like, I want to simultaneously do this with you, and that's really important. That can be really cool. Or even with something like Mechs versus Minions, I still need to, like, know where you're moving. Like, now that you're, like, getting in the way of me, that you're grabbing the bomb instead of me. Like, all that kind of stuff matters. In Quirky Circuits, you are simultaneously programming together a single unit's movement so that's really uh, a crazy kind of thing but the negative side of this and i think you see this more in some games than others in this kind of list is that alpha player syndrome can crop up much more because you need this like direct cooperation you can get people telling like you need to do this on round three like even in wonder woman i don't see this as a big problem because it's kind of fun and like everyone's working together and it's light like, in Wonder Woman, I'll be like, all right, all of us are going to use book on round three. All of you use book. You got to use book. And people might see that as a cooperative thing, like we're kind of figuring it out together. But, you know, I also feel like I'm just telling everyone else this is what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And someone who bristles at alpha player easily is definitely going to bristle at that. And I think that's a common thing in programming games. I know in Space Alert it happens. You almost kind of need a leader to tell people what to do. But, again, that's going to really bother some gamers. One, especially when you introduce a timed element. And this is especially visible in Magic Maze, where that time pressure gets there and, like, you're not allowed to talk to each other, but people are banging on the table with that red pawn. Like, come on, dude, it's you, it's you. You got to do what you're supposed to do. Like, I don't know what I'm... And and that's not a programming game, but you know what I mean. Like, where each individual player has got their own responsibility and it's out of the control of other people. So when you add a time element to it, increases tension and also increases the ability or the lack of ability for somebody to control themselves and become that alpha player. Yeah, and it's interesting because most of these games have limited communication. And in our discussion of limited communication, one of the pros was that it reduces alpha player because you don't know what's going on or you can't see everything. But the time element and like the this stuff happens on turn two element, I think kind of counteracts that and even goes the other way maybe in some ways. Yeah, let's talk about mitigation a little bit, because I think the one that does it best for me is Space Alert, because you don't have to play cards in every spot. So, like you were saying, you program Phase 1, then Phase 2, Phase 3, Phase 4, but there are three spots in each phase, but you don't have to program each spot. And sometimes you just can't think of what to do, or you don't have the right cards to do what you want to do. And so you can basically push that action to the next part of programming. And in a way, it helps you because now you get to draw more cards. And so 
you have a bigger hand size for those next three actions. And so you can push that action down the line a little bit if you need to. Like, oh, I need you to push the batteries here so I can push the batteries here or whatever else. Or I need you to push the batteries so I can shoot or I can use the shields or whatever else. Well, I'm going to delay that action. Now I'll take it on the fourth turn instead of the third turn or whatever. So I think that's one cool way of mitigating the luck of programming a little bit is that long-term planning as you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I think we can do more. I mean, I'm imagining, like, let's say, <laughs> I don't think this has been made, but maybe it has. Let's say there's, like, a programming dungeon crawler. I mean, you got to kind of decide how much you want the wacky humor or frustration, <laughs> depending on how it goes over, of, like, things being messed up, and how much you want to give the players real choices. So let's say it's a dungeon crawler, and I have hit points that the enemies can take away. Maybe when all the uh, cards are revealed and my program is revealed, I can switch in any card by taking some damage, and I can control myself, but it has a cost to it. You know, or again, like you do Mage Knight style, and any card becomes a one of anything, even though it could have been a two or three of something else. I, I would fully support those things, because I think they make what could seem like a light mechanic of programming a little bit crunchier, but also reduce the need for frustration. But that means you're going to get fewer, oh crap, you know, you went in the wrong direction and now we all die moments, which might <laughs> go over well with my groups and might go over terribly with yours. Yeah, and I think it really depends on the theme as well. I think Quirky Circuits, the reason they did the theme that they did is because they wanted, hey, sometimes your thing's going to just go haywire and you're not going to know what's going on with it and it's going to end up in a corner somewhere spinning around and around. It doesn't make as much sense in something like a dungeon crawl where, hey, everybody's supposed to go right on this turn and your guy goes left. Well, wait a minute. Why would he do that? There's no way if you are a person... You're not going to be controlled that way. And I think a lot of times that's why they make these robots. It makes a lot of sense thematically that you're programming robots. But Space Alert doesn't do that. You're all individual characters. But it's the frustration of the lack of communication, I guess, there. You know, hey, we're on a ship. We're trying to communicate. But somehow we got our wires crossed. So, yeah, I, I think it would be cool. And that's the one thing I'm seeing as we talk more and more about this. There's a lot of room for design here. There's a lot of room to throw in wacky ways to make it even wackier. And there's a lot of ways to throw in mitigation that haven't been done. Because I think you're right. I would have loved if I could have used any card in Wonder Woman as a move card. Sometimes you just need that one space and you don't have it. So I think there's a lot of design space here, both that have been explored and that can be explored in the future. Well, yeah, and, and again, look at Mechs versus Minions. That just shows how wide open kind of this mechanic can be. Space Alert, Quirky Circuits, Wonder Woman, all hidden programming. Mechs versus Minion is visible. All the other ones, you program for one turn, and then those cards are gone. Mechs versus Minions, there's permanence, and you can put new programs on top of old ones and even level up your programs so they do cooler or different things. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of design space here, not everything needs to be limiting communication, hidden programming. You can have something more like Mechs vs. Minions or in between. I mean, I, I don't know. The more I talk about this, the more I want to design a game that uses <laughs> programming in some way now. So I'm kind of getting excited by the possibilities. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I like I like programming games overall. Again, because of the puzzle, I am all about... I mean, watch my reviews. Anytime a game has fun puzzles for a turn, I'm sold. And it just makes that more likely with programming. But I, I'd like to see even more of them. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to end. I think we're going to talk more programming in the future because, we, as we've just discussed, we've never covered Mechs vs. Minions. Oh, actually, I think Steve has, though, right? 
Yes, but we can talk about Quirky Circus. But, yeah, we haven't done Quirky Circus yet, and I'm sure that'll be coming in the next couple weeks. So we do have some things to talk about. I'm sure we're going to dive even deeper into this subject in the future. So for now, I think that's a good place to end. Let's give some final thoughts, though. Mike, what are your advice for people designing a game with programming in it? Again, I would, like you already said, uh, keep the game simple. Let the programming be kind of the complicating element. Uh, Have mitigation. Have it be shorter-term programming so the frustration is lowered. And then add on top of that. Like, make the game fun to play as much as I love the oh crud everything went wrong moments i've played with enough people to see that that is not the majority i think most people don't like that as much as they might like other versions so i would say make it more controlled and less random as a starting point yes and that's my final thought is make it more controlled like i don't think we've seen the programming game that i want to play yet mechs vs minion is probably the closest because as you're drafting you can draft cards to get rid of all the bad programming stuff that's done so for me that is the one you have the most control in but yeah i actually get very frustrated with these games for some reason i don't know why and i don't know what's the difference between galaxy trucker and this because galaxy trucker i'd say is one of my top 10 games of all time and most of these programming games wouldn't be in my top 100 so i don't know what the difference is i don't know why i don't get frustrated there And maybe it's a matter of perspective and maybe it's a matter of I think I'm really good at the tile drafting and that part of the puzzle. And I don't like the programming part of the puzzle. But I would say do your best to minimize the frustration because as much as you as a designer and we've done this before, too, we bring a game to a table and and I'll give you the perfect example. Mike was at a playtest day one time. It was great. It was Salvation Road was there. Root was there. A, A bunch of like top tier games was there. And Mike went to an unpub table. You know, this was at an unpub mini event. And Mike went to a table and played a race game with somebody. And Mike was killing, beating the field. And the designer was there. And he was in last place by a mile. And Mike's like, what are you doing, dude? But then the designer whips out this card that says, the last place player switches place with the first place player. So Mike literally went from winning this game to being in last place. And the designer's laughing. He's like, isn't that great? And people are like, no, that's not great. That's the worst thing ever. And so as much as we as designers think, oh, isn't this frustration funny? You know, isn't this frustrating, potentially frustrating moment funny? It might not be funny for your players. You have to keep in mind that there are going to be people like me out there that do get frustrated by these things and maybe give them some mitigating factors to deal with some of the frustration that goes along with it. When also you and your big play testers will play the game a lot of times no matter what. So you can appreciate the humor and like the goofy moments. But, you know, we know that a lot of games only get played once and it's like... That goofy moment is the (laughs) game-killing, frustrating, this game sucks moment, and then it's immediately on the trading box or, you know, in the trash or sold. So, yeah, I I agree with you 100%. But, by the way, Peter put uh, Salvation Road and Root together as equally great games in his little uh, lead-up to that. I, uh, as much as I like our own game, <laughs> I would not agree that Salvation Road is equal to Root. <laughs> it wasn't Root, by the way. It was, uh, what's their other, their first one? Oh, uh, Vast? It was Vast. Okay, I, I would say the comparison, at least for me, I'm not a big fan of Vast. I would say the comparison there is a little bit closer. <laughs> Sorry, yes, it was not Root, it was definitely Vast. But, you know, this was the dawning of us as designers and the dawning of leader games as a publisher, we, you know, we're all at this unpub. So that's the other thing. Go to unpub. I know it's going to be hard. I, they are delaying it this year. 
hopefully to a time where everybody can get out. And I know in this time of craziness, like we're all stuck at home right now. We're all thinking of, of things to do. I would say Mike and I have definitely done some more online gaming. Try to do that. There are lots of sites that have been there forever. Yucata.de, Tabletop Simulator, Tabletopia. There's a lot of great app games that have multiplayer integration there. Try to find a community of people. And I'll tell you, there is a community forming on our Slack right now. There's a channel just dedicated to online gaming together. So there are lots of places you can go. I'm not saying our community is the best one to go to, but I'm just saying go find yourself a community. If you're going crazy, if you're getting frustrated being at home, if you're reading news every day, stop it. Don't give yourself that much stress. Go find somebody to game with and do some online gaming. Do some more productive use of your time where you're actually making yourself happy rather than depressing yourself and, and you know putting yourself in a bad way. Yeah, stay healthy out there, everyone. We're uh, all hoping this will end as quickly as possible. But uh, we got to keep ourselves sane and uh, keep ourselves safe as well as we can. All right, so good game, everyone. Have an awesome week. Uh, we'll have some good YouTube channel content for you. Oh, I should say, uh, it's at the end of the episode, but if you've listened to this long, uh, my Shelf Life episode, my live episode, the plan is to go live 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, the same day this is being published. So if you're listening to this really early Sunday morning, you might still have time. Otherwise, you probably already missed it. <laughs> but hopefully you voted in the uh, Shelf Life contest and hopefully you won. Yeah, stay safe, everybody. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks with another Top 5 list. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. But what we're covering today is Wonder Woman, the battle for Themyscira. Did I, did I say that right? Is that the name? <laughs> you know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, let me look that up. Just double check. Pretty sure that's right. Nope, that's not at all right. <laughs> all right, hold on. It's Wonder Woman something of the Amazons, right? Challenge of the Amazons, yeah. Is Theniscare the name of the island, though? That's the name of the island. That's what I was getting. <laughs> yeah, well, we typically... They love that. We typically... Typically... typically <laughs> well, at least we have bloopers, right? <laughs> Sorry, I got a giant effing spider here. I'm going to go kill. <laughs> and that's the basic idea. You finish resolving the actions, and so then you repeat. You ah, hit him! Dude, it's like a tarantula. Is he dead? No, I got him. Oh. <laughs> got him again. Got him again. Got him again. Oh, is it, is it, it must be big enough to be gooey, right? That's the worst. Yeah, it's pretty big, and it's on the back of the iPad. All right, I'm going to go clean that up. Yeah, my number one is sharing one of yours as well, and that's the different enemies. And the different enemies are very, very different, as Mike said. Very much, in my opinion, better than what they did in Villainous. I really like... Not Villainous. Horrified. Villainous is a good game, actually. I think the enemies are better in Villainous. I think everybody's better in Villainous. Well, there are no enemies in Villainous. You are the enemies in Villainous. That's right. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Stay away from me. <laughs> Six feet, buddy. Six feet. <laughs>